0: Bye. Everybody, and welcome to the H word. Hi, Dan. Uh, Burn. Hi,
1: Becky. How's it going?
0: Becky Johnson, that is. Yes. You can see my whole name. Um, I'm good. Uh, we have a bit of a special episode today, huh?
1: Yes, we do. I'm very excited. We have a special
0: guest. We're recording in a new space. We're 16 floors up, and you know we'll do a weather
1: report. It's snowing. It's snowing. Yeah, it's windy and snowing. Mm-hmm.
0: And um, we have a very special guest who is on the I'm um, not the phone, but kind of the phone. Yeah, us. the internet. You he's, know, we're doing he's it. He's elsewhere. Yeah. um It's Mr. Sorry. I'm so sorry, Doctor Danwerb.
1: werb <laughs> Hi, I c-
2: can't believe that you messed that up. <laughs> I am. I'm so offended. <laughs> I, I I don't know what to do. Honestly.
0: Oh my gosh! We're three seconds in, and we've already ruined the interview. Um, Dan is, actually, Dan, I'm going to let you, Dan, this is very difficult to have two Dans, um, to introduce yourself. Normally at the top of the show with a guest, I ask them to sort of describe who they are and that could be your profession, but also who you are as a human outside of work, what you like, who you are.
2: Uh, Yeah, sure. So, you know, this whole doctor thing, I have a PhD. That's why I I guess I'm technically a doctor. I, I think of people with PhDs as soft docs, you know, like I'm not going (laughs) to be able to uh, heal wounds or reset bones or anything like that. So if this podcast requires that, um, you know, I'm just not able to do that. But I do have a PhD in epidemiology. um, So I can talk about when illnesses get to the level of populations
1: and yeah. Oh!
0: So. Oh, cool! You know about that? What a cool thing to talk about right now. <laughs>
1: I will say that I will say that I, I don't need any uh, physical wounds healed, but this podcast does re- does uh, need to heal some wounds so. in, in
0: life. Oh, yeah! Oh, Mister Vern, thank yeah. you so much. <laughs> That's so sweet. Um, and also, Dan Werb, I think you could set a bone in an emergency.
2: Yeah. I I mean, I I definitely have the confidence that I would try. Whether I would get it right is a whole other thing, but I think I'd be game to to try.
0: Would you try if there were more qualified people around, but you got there first?
2: (laughs) Uh, How how long is it going to take for them to get there?
0: 10, 15 minutes.
2: Yeah, I might give it a
1: go. <laughs> I might jump in
0: there. hey why not? Um, but yeah, so, so you're an epidemiologist. Um, there's some stuff going on globally right now, and that's why we thought we'd take advantage of our friendship and talk to you right now about, you know... What's happening on this planet? Uh, if you, In case you haven't heard.
1: <laughs> yeah, we don't need to do the whole rundown. Everyone knows.
0: <laughs> there's, a big, there's a big problem and there's a new disease. Um, in Canada today, the first community transmission was confirmed. That's yes. what I read this morning. So, in BC. Yeah, shit's going down. Um,
2: uh, so you guys, just to be clear, you guys are assuming that nobody's going to be listening to this episode in longer than a year from now. Uh, when nobody can remember what epidemic everyone was freaking out about,
1: that's very that's a very interesting perspective. We're yes, we're talking about COVID nineteen, um, and that is the that is exactly the reason we have you on here. So when you look at the timeline in that kind of uh, perspective, you feel that in a year's time it will be almost a punchline or like quasi forgotten or something like that. Is that right?
2: Well, no, I I, <clears throat> I wouldn't say necessarily, but I think. At this stage, you know, things move quickly. When when Becky uh, asked me to be on the show, and I think in the spirit of scientific disclosures of conflict of interest, I should state that Becky and I went to elementary school together. <laughs>
0: yeah, and may, maybe summer camp? Or was that your brother? Maybe,
2: no, that was my bro. Okay. That was my bro. <laughs> I only ever went to Camp Narnia.
0: What's that? <laughs> Sorry.
2: So, Screw epidemics.
0: So, oh, What's Narnia?
2: Yeah. It's a whole other um, episode. Um, <clears throat> so when I was doing a little bit of research in in lead up to this, I started to think, okay, what was the last major epidemic that um, that kind of took the world by storm? Last Nin- pandemic, I should say, uh, nineteen eighteen. And yeah, why don't you guys like just give it a go?
0: Well, I said nineteen eighteen influenza. The
1: the the last pandemic to have gripped the world. Um, well, I mean, I guess there's like, you know, you think about SARS and MERS, but like MERS didn't didn't maybe travel that far. SARS also didn't get all the way around the world. So like
0: <gasps> the British invasion.
2: <laughs> so uh, I'll I'll give you a hint. It it happened like not that long ago.
1: Okay. My,
2: oh, my, oh, bird bird
1: flu? H1N1.
2: Yeah. Right. right? So that was believed to have infected 15 between, between 10 and 200 million people and to have produced anywhere between uh, about 100,000 and 400 deaths worldwide 400,000 deaths worldwide
1: 400,000 deaths worldwide my goodness i believe that i got h1n1
2: right so yeah. so i'm not i like when we think about covid-19 i think you know first of all you want to think about okay what what do we know about it right now not what do we speculate it's going to do in the future? Mm. but also let's think about other pandemics and there was a huge pandemic ten years ago, right yeah in in uh, in everybody that's listening to this podcast's lifetime, and we can't even remember it, right?
1: Yeah, we certainly can't remember the emotional impact
2: right so i I think like one of the one of the things about pandemics. One of the things about epidemics generally is that they're scary. So the, the, I think this is obviously super relevant to your show, which is basically like, you know, I, I study epidemics and the major side effect of every epidemic is fear. Right. So. I think that's more than anything what, what the world is, gripping, is being gripped with right now. And while, while there's a small proportion, a tiny proportion of the world's total population that is currently actually infected with the virus, um, a huge proportion of the world's population is gripped with fear of the epidemic. And I think separating out those two things is super important. But aren't um, we all going to get it? <laughs> well, I mean, I like at this stage, no, I don't think so. I think it's it's unlikely. I mean, who, do you mean the, the global population? Absolutely not. So H1N1, huge pandemic, 200 million people. There was like over 6 billion people on the planet when uh, the H1N1 pandemic uh, spread. Right. So 200 million people is a tiny proportion of the total population similarly uh, of the globe like similarly we're going to see there, there it's very even the even the craziest most virulent most um uh you know the the viruses that are going to spread as as fast and as far as possible they're going to infect a minority almost certainly of the global
1: population
0: well, this, so, this is good to hear, because honestly, uh, I'm certainly, I think I'm not scared of getting it. I've just accepted that I will, and maybe that's insane.
1: Well, and, and I would say that my fear, um, it doesn't even extend to getting it, because when I think about actually getting it, I don't, that's not what I'm afraid of. It's the, it's, it's a much more nebulous, uh, intangible fear. Like of, the
0: collapse of society because of this?
1: Yeah, it, it extends into the, in, into the clouds, and... Um, It's so uh, it's such a clear example of like um, of people forgetting history and that that being so problematic because like I can't remember the emotional impact, but I also really can't remember the like policy impact of H1N1 because right now I'm like studying in such detail the policy impact of the fear of COVID-19. And it's like, you know, I'm, I'm. I'm combing through exactly what steps are being taken by international organizations. It's like, I have no idea what they did for the last pandemic.
0: Yeah, I don't either. And were we talking about as much in the news, Dan Werb? I don't know if you know that with H1N1.
2: I, I, for sure, it was a huge story. It was a massive story. But um, what's really interesting is that even when you, like 10 years ago, um, I think there were major changes in, in how we shared information. Like when did when did Twitter start? I think it was under ten years ago, right? So just thinking about those kinds of uh social media platforms where information is spread so rapidly, like that didn't exist ten years ago. Maybe, you know, there was Facebook and
1: Yeah, there Twitter was like maybe
2: there was MySpace, but um uh but you know, in terms of like Twitter at specifically as a really effective way to spread information that just didn't exist.
0: So is it good or bad or both? Twitter?
2: (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, that's a whole other thing. Yeah, I think it's good. I mean, sure. Democratizing communication um, in principle. Well, Um, oh, yeah. Go on. No, but again, like the the side effect is that um, the information is not vetted, right? And it's not necessarily... It's it's not necessarily gonna be super reliable, and you're gonna get people who are tweeting facts that um are not necessarily like they may be correct, but they might not be understandable. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, this um, is
0: this is something that I took from uh your book, City of Omens, which we can talk about at the end and people should go by, but um was the in epidemiology, the um Oh now I don't have the word, and you know it. The, how sure you are of your predictions. What's that word?
2: Right, so your confidence. yeah, your level of uncertainty.
0: Yeah, these are things that exist in this the field but also are very hard to communicate to the public.
2: Yeah. yeah, well, I'm glad you took that away from the book, Becky, because that's like one of the main main takeaways. so so to expand on that A-plus a little bit to me, um, you know when you when you mix science, with media, it's always gonna be super uncomfortable because media stories, and and I'm not like, this is not to blame journalists. Like I I write, I I practice as a journalist occasionally as well. So media stories, the point is to get information across in uh, ways that grips the reader and causes them to, you know, read the whole thing and is educated Um, But you have to kind of make this balance between um, uncertainty and kind of forthrightness and confidence in in what you're describing. Whereas scientific practice, like in terms of epidemiology, so that's the study of epidemics, it's all about uncertainty. What you're trying to do is essentially say, okay, well, we think it's going to be this bad, but it could be, you know, not this bad or way 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 worse than we actually think so um you know what that means is in in scientific terms there's a there's a range estimate for um how bad things might be and i'm being super broad here so if there are scientists listening they're gonna roll their eyes well
0: because we're a bit Um, the media too so we have to do this
2: we have to simplify it yeah yeah. So, so there's a range estimate. So, so responsible scientists are going to say things like, okay, well, we think it, you know, for example, the case fatality rate of COVID-19, we think it's between, you know, and I'm, and I'm making these numbers up, but 1.0 cases per hundred and and uh, 4.0 cases per hundred. Uh, and it's, it's kind of somewhere in between there. Whereas – and then they'll offer a point estimate, which is an actual hard number. And, it, and right now it's it sounds like people are saying it's around 3.5. Mm-hmm. Um, and the media will only report the 3.5, right? Mm-hmm. Or the 3.4, I think it is. Because people just don't have enough time or um, uh, attention span uh, to – to digest all of that information in a short news article. So the kind of uncertainty that is super important when considering something as complicated as an epidemic, which really there's no way to actually understand it in, you know, in, in real world terms. We can only understand it in terms of a model, um, which is never going to truly replicate real, the real world. Um you know a lot of that nuance is lost and and i think it it makes things it it on the one hand makes things seem scarier than they are, and it also makes scientists seem much more sure of an outcome than anyone really is
1: right. yeah this was something I really liked about your piece in the the new york times um you had a piece early on in the outbreak and um it was one like it didn't it it um it was very like clear in it's here's what we don't know uh, sort of spirit. And um, that was, it was, uh, it did feel like I was being treated as an audience, uh, as as an audience that was able to understand the uncertainty. And um, that was, I think, really important because as media consumers, we have been trained over decades, right? And we've we've learned more. We're definitely more media literate than we have been in the past than ever before. I would say. And um, do you think that there's a way that we can sort of continue to train the general public to to accept that kind of that kind of nuance and that kind of like uh, um, sort of challenge within news articles, or do you think that like or do you think that, like, um, I mean, not not that we're sort of doomed to only ingest sound bites, but like, uh, do you think it's it's um, maybe a bit of a futile a quest?
2: No, I, I don't think it's futile. And and to the point, uh, I like I appreciate you reading the piece in the Times. Like they that piece, I think was useful. I heard from a lot of people because it explain the basic way that scientists are looking at this problem. So maybe I'll just briefly recap it. Yeah, There's this thing called the epidemic triangle, and it's, it's, a, it's a construct that every epidemiologist uses to understand uh, and quantify how an epidemic is going to move. There's three uh, variables in an epidemic uh, at, 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 that, that foundationally drive it. One is the pathogen. So that's the actual you know, thing that's cr- causing the uh, epidemic. In this case, it's COVID-19, this virus. The second is the host. So that's the organism that's being infected. In this case, it's humans, right? And then the third point of the triangle is the environment. <clears throat> and that's just you know, where all the interaction between uh, the pathogen, the, in this case, COVID-19, and the host, in this case, humans... Where all that infection is happening. And epidemics occur when there is a shift in the relationship between at least two of those three points of the triangle. Right. So what we believe has happened with COVID-19 is that a new virus emerged. Um, But uh, So, you know, it was a shift in the pathogen itself. But what's also clear is that that was somehow related to a shift in the environment where you've got um, greater pressure um, because um, because humans are living in, in um, urbanized areas. Global travel is opening up the environment for viruses to travel super quickly across the entire planet. And then in China itself, you've got this rapid expansion of the trade in wildlife um, and <clears throat> as a result of a rising middle class right. w- who have more money to buy exotic um, wildlife and game meat. So, so that those two shifts in terms of the pathogen actually emerging as something new, and then the environmental shift in terms of all the ways that are just described, that seems to have driven the epidemic. And it, and those three components, the vulnerability of the host. So how, how vulnerable humans are to this, what the pathogen you know, it looks like, whether it changes, and what the environment within which all of this is playing out, you know, whether that changes in terms of the virus landing in new spots. Those are the basic ways that epidemiologists are going to understand the epidemic and try to respond to it.
1: Now, um, can we quickly define three terms, epidemic, pandemic, and endemic?
0: Oh, I know this from the book. Oh, okay, great. I don't know pandemic. Epidemic, I know the, I know the etymology, I learned it from Dr. Dan Werb.
2: Yeah, go for it. <laughs>
0: epidemic means upon the people. That's right. And endemic means within the people.
2: Yeah, within or among the people. Among. So they're and pan nice. is they're,
0: pan. I don't know. I don't all, understand. All that.
2: the people, <laughs> I would imagine.
0: Well, it just it's just staying there. So epidemic new just arrived. Correct? Incorrect?
2: Yeah. epi So so endemic. You know, it's it, it. This goes back to ancient Greek. So. Demos the people Democ- democracy, democracy same, yeah. same route. Oh, interesting. So, epi means kind of above the people. So, it, it's like a single point that is landing among the people. That's how I think about it. Um, endemic is Becky. <coughs> Excuse me.
0: Oh no. Uh oh.
2: I just muted myself while I was talking. <laughs> it was very Not scary, listeners. <laughs> it was much scarier
0: uh, for you to mute yourself. <laughs>
2: I can tell you that this this is a daycare related cough uh, because my kid just started daycare. Um, and then yeah, so endemic means among the people. So endemic means essentially when something is is so ubiquitous that it's just um, you know there's there's no way to to remove it from the population. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then pandemic essentially means that it has crossed the threshold of uh, and and is worldwide. There's no, I mean, there's also another term, which I think is useful to understand and and separate, which is outbreak. Okay. Um, So outbreak just means, um, you know, an occurrence of cases more than uh, is believed uh, or or is expected. Mm. Uh, And like the ways in which we track these things, there's an outbreak, then there's an epidemic, and then there's a pandemic. And then it becomes endemic. Like that's the worst case scenario for all. Um, new um, diseases.
0: And we're looking at um, COVID-19 becoming endemic, mm-hmm. right? Or no, we don't know.
2: No, I don't think so. I mean, oh. I don't know if we can even necessarily call it a pandemic at this point. And part of that is because there's no hard and fast rules around what separates an epidemic from a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Generally, a pandemic is just an epidemic that has spread to multiple locations. But at the same time, sometimes a pandemic means that you've got an epidemic basically everywhere. Like the common cold is, um, I would say a pandemic. Um, uh, and you could also potentially describe it as endemic because it's always among the population. Um, but I, I don't think right now that, you know, some people would argue that we're not at the pandemic. Um, you know, we can't yet really call this, COVID-19 thing, a pandemic. And I don't actually think that the, the World Health Organization has gone that far.
0: Yeah, I don't think they have either.
2: Yeah. Okay. Um,
0: I had a question. Okay. Well, actually, so this is interesting when you talk about fear, um, and also how you work in a field that that lives in uncertainty. I think uncertainty is very scary. So those two things might constantly be coming up against each other, right? Like that's what's scary is the unknown future of what's going to unfold.
2: Yeah, it is. But but what but what epidemiologists do is they produce ranges, right? And I and I, I I'm consoled by that. Like I I'm not consoled by someone. Saying okay, it's going to be exactly this bad, or it will right. certainly not be this bad. What consoles me is 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 when people say okay, well, it might be this bad, but this is the extreme, um, you know, the extreme scenario in one direction and the extreme scenario in another direction. What are um, you? What are you scared of? What am I scared of?
0: Yeah, like, are you scared of any of this stuff? Are you scared of diseases?
2: Well, my fear, I can tell you my fear, my, like, true death fear, is Yes, born. please. Okay, so, um, of being, uh, somehow stuck under a tanker <laughs> <laughs> and not knowing which way to get out. Like a, like be, a
0: big boat?
2: Yeah, and then, and then being stuck under it and, uh, being cut up by barnacles. <laughs> like being,
0: <died>. being, like, <laughs> keel holed?
2: Yeah, essentially, essentially, like I somehow end up all of a sudden under a tanker. Yeah. I grew up in Vancouver with Becky. There Mm -hmm. were lots of tankers in English Bay. There sure were. Um, And I always saw them and I was like, "Yep, that would be a bad way to go. They're
0: so far away from the coast. How would a little boy get there?
2: I don't know. I don't know how that little boy would
1: get there. I don't know. That's the whole thing.
0: Dan Byrne, what's your greatest fear?
1: Um. well, it's me under a tanker
0: Oh, you stole it um, oh, All Dan's have the same fear
1: yeah. No, what's... Uh, I, I, was, I was just trying to think of it In terms of that um, That kind of You know uh, Imagine anything you want And uh, I don't know I, I don't have a go-to
0: Well, I don't like slugs And I'm pretty scared of dying <laughs> mine. I'm not really scared of slugs I don't want one to touch me And yeah. I, that's also another West Coast thing Yeah, lots of slugs out there. I had a nightmare, a recurring nightmare growing up that I would, and this is like when I was a teenager, that I was standing in the corner of a room and all these slugs were slowly coming towards me and I had to either stand there and wait for them to all get to me or walk over them to get out. (laughs) That's not really a fear. I I don't want to do it. Um, Okay. Seriously though, Um, Dr. Werb. yeah Yeah. uh one of the things so there's another article and we um for listeners we'll we'll put links to all these articles somewhere keep saying we're going to make a newsletter i'm close to figuring it out (laughs) at the very least we have twitter um but you just published an article for buzzfeed news about um sort of about um epidemics pandemics and authoritarian governments right now this is something that i've been thinking a lot about and so this like, you know, I don't know if we're looking at the collapse of society, but we're certainly looking at some shifts as a result of this. Uh, the exciting ones being maybe people will wash their hands more in this fun sort of toe tapping handshake. Those are nice things we can keep. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, in the United States and in China, this definitely seems to spin and and probably other places as well, spin into rhetoric that can give governments a lot more power over us. You wrote a really wonderful piece about this, but... In the podcast here we're talking about hope in the future, and this is one of the things that I feel very bleak about right now is that we can see all this unfolding, this authoritarianism, and we're we're actually allowing it to be worse. What are your thoughts on this?
2: Yeah, well, I mean as the Buzz so what I what I was trying to do with the BuzzFeed article was was explain sort of my thinking, which is that, you know, sometimes when when epidemics are bad uh, and we're trying to contain them, we have to take extraordinary measures to do that. And that means quarantine. Like, if you look at quarantine in, in a certain way, it's essentially forceful confinement, yeah. right? Um, so, so you know, we should always be wary of that. But a lot of the time, it's we need to do that, right? Like, we needed to presumably um, hold people or hold people for two weeks in isolation to make sure, uh, that they don't get other people sick when they're really, really sick. But what I was trying to explain with the, with the article is that when you look at China's response, the world health organization has, has generally praised it for being super rapid, um, super forceful and kind of an all hands on deck response, right. Where they essentially quarantined or tried to quarantine a city of a million of, of 11 million people, which is fucking crazy mm-hmm. um, and they seem to have actually reduced the spread of infection now what I don't want to lose in that though is that there are multiple elements to authoritarian responses and some of the things that governments do to respond to the epidemic might be super good yet forceful uh, and kind of authoritarian tinged public health responses and others might just be batshit crazy, right? So yeah. like China, yeah, maybe, you know, It all signs point to the fact that, yes, they needed to set up quarantines. They needed to make sure that, you know, as forcefully as possible, that they can reduce the transmission of the virus. But did they have to censor posts on the messaging app WeChat that mentioned the coronavirus? Yeah. Or did they have to jail... Um, Journalists who were essentially whistleblowers about, um, you know, in the early days of the spread of the virus, mm-hmm. um, who were explaining that things were actually worse than the Chinese government was uh, saying they were. Like, those to me clearly would have a dampening effect on the capacity of a government to effectively respond. And some of the examples that I gave in the, in the, um, <clears throat> article were when, when it's much more obvious that epidemics and fear of epidemics can be used to justify really horrible things. So one of the cases is the migrant caravan that traveled from Central America um, last year uh, and headed up to Tijuana and then was trying to make asylum claims in the United States. And as they moved up, you saw all these tropes about how You know, this was a like an almost three thousand person strong uh, caravan of migrants who were fleeing violence and and uh, economic deprivation, Um, and there were all these tropes about how they were diseased, how they were how they all had HIV, how they all had tuberculosis, hepatitis C, and it and and it got to the point where, unsurprisingly, with this president, like Trump, was suddenly tweeting about how they were all diseased. They were he was talking about um, how They were going to spread disease in, in the United States. Yeah. Obviously, total bullshit, right? And what that allowed the administration in the states to do was essentially justify the holding and cruelty that they then subsequently carried out on these people, which, let's not forget, was like mass separation of families, Mm -hmm. holding children in cages for months and months and months Mm -hmm. uh, children being so mistreated that they actually died in custody. Right. Yeah. So all of that was justified for in a number of different ways, but part of it was this fear of epidemic that just allowed people to shift their gaze to kind of not care as much about what happened to these people because suddenly these people were sort of like sub people. Um,
0: <clears throat> yeah, they were just like d- disease
2: vectors and not humans. Exactly. Exactly. And a lot of that happens subconsciously, right? So mm-hmm. people in government were in the Department of Homeland Security, um, were able to essentially justify the insane cruelty that they were a part of um, in the system of, of complete and abject terror that they established um, and essentially imprisonment of children, um, partially on the backs of this fear of disease.
0: And I mean, it's, um, it's, it's very disturbing to watch history repeated this way. I mean, I'm Jewish. And I know that exact same rhetoric was used in during the Holocaust, you know, their disease vectors. They're dirty.
2: Yeah, so I think, you know, like, we need to, as you say, like, we need to wash our hands, we need to abide by public health measures, we need to be really careful. And I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't you know, be in quarantine if they're super sick and at risk of spreading the disease, the, the virus further. But at the same time, we really need to check ourselves when we think that, uh, you know, that that just because it's so evident, like you're saying, that there are historical precedents where fears of epidemics have been used to justify really horrible things. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think that's the point of the article. Um, and, I, and I see, you know, the potential with every epidemic that that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, Sometimes it, it just means that certain groups are ignored because they're believed to be sick or ill or, you know, whatever, diseased. Um, Other times it, it can be used to justify um, horrible things. Uh, Yeah.
0: So I've also been thinking about, about this, like China is being lauded for their response. It does seem a bit scary what they're doing and mysterious too. I don't know what's happening in Wuhan and, um, but I I also am not expert enough to see a more benevolent treatment. I mean, they're just sort of like cordoning off whole areas. Italy also. Huge sections are just like, don't go there.
2: Yeah. And so I, I think, again, like it's totally possible and probably likely, more than likely, that governments are going to impose a mix of really effective measures and measures that are not affected. Uh, and <clears throat> they all might kind of seem like necessary autocratic responses to this epidemic. And, mm-hmm. But they aren't all, right? So again, like going back to this example of, okay, so you can quarantine people who are sick, which seems like we know is a really effective way to stop the spread of disease. But jailing people for talking about the spread of disease and potential ways in which government approaches have failed, that is only going to make things worse. Yeah. So we need to be able to look at what governments are doing, and obviously it's easier when when it's our own government and we're on the ground and and be able to kind of you know thoughtfully think about, okay, well, what makes sense here and what doesn't and And again, part of what uh, makes that that's so difficult with epidemics is that we're seized with this panic. So we're not often thinking straight about you know, the response. We're just thinking, Oh my God, I'm at risk. I'm going to get sick. I'm going to die. People I know are going to die. So let's just fix things as quickly as possible and let's not question, um, the government.
0: Right. So what do you think of the Canadian government's response and what's going on? Do you know about this?
2: I know a little bit about it. Uh, I'm sort of looking at it, um, out of the corner of my eye, I would say. Um, Honestly, I'm not super concerned so far about Canada's response because, um, it seems like the spread is pretty, uh, under control so far in Canada, particularly relative to other places. What's super interesting about the Canadian response is that the public health, uh, agency of Canada was launched in 2004, right after SARS. Right. And, uh, I think the understanding is that a lot of the reason why Canada at the time felt like it needed a separate public health agency as a part of government separate from our health ministry was because of, you know, these exactly these kinds of outbreaks. Um, so, you know, it's interesting to see how things are happening. Um, like I said, we have really good health surveillance. Um, there's lots and lots that we have, we have super, like not only do we have an amazing universal healthcare system, obviously, but we also have really pretty good health surveillance. So
1: can I um, can I relate yeah. a personal anecdote here? Um, I uh, I recently got back from international travel. I was on a flight from Zurich via. Uh, I was from Berlin via Zurich, and um, I was at a festival film festival. I was, you know. At least a few feet away from many international delegates. Congratulations for a
0: long time. on your big win!
1: Thank you, we won an award. Yes, thank <laughs> you. Um, but as the plane was landing, I had—I was having a sore throat, and uh, one of the things they say on the on the intercom is, if you have any of these symptoms, one of them listed is a sore throat, you need to tell us. And my girlfriend looked at me and she said, <laughs> "Do not tell them. We are not going to spend the rest of the day at the airport because you have a sore right. throat." It's also
0: important to know that um, Dan Byrne is very concerned about some things.
1: I'm. Very and his concerned. girlfriend knows
0: him so she's not like dismissing some a real health
1: threat. It's like But I'm I'm also concerned with with civic duty and this idea of um what you know, what is your job to do when you uh, are experiencing something that might be a danger to the public? So I a couple of days went by. My sore throat went away almost immediately after I got a nice rest. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's a dry plane. It's a long flight. Um, but I still uh, I was looking up articles of like what to do, this kind of thing. And uh, they were like, don't overwhelm yours. Call your doctor. So I called my doctor and uh, they said, "Okay, interesting. We have, you know, we've had people call with these concerns. Here are some questions for you. Have you had international travel? Do you have any of these symptoms? And as soon as I said sore throat, she went, hmm, okay. let me put you on hold. Put me on hold, comes back and she says, "Okay, so basically we don't know. And if you feel like you might be, you might have it, you should go to the ER and self-quarantine immediately. And I and I just felt a bit um, like... You know, I I, I do like the Canadian government's like response to things so far, but there's this also like, I don't know, um, personal uh, sort of detailed experience of it, which is that you go to the doctor and they say, I I don't know, like turn yourself in, I guess. And um, so it felt a little more like uh, I I felt a little less confident (laughs) when I experienced that.
0: Yeah, and like, yeah. Then, but that's the question: is what is your responsibility? Because Dan, you're a very responsible, considerate person who would self quarantine for two weeks because you had a sore throat, just in case. I had a sore throat th- for one
1: night, <laughs> and uh, and I, I, it, because I, I thought about the actual uh, ramifications of self quarantine, it was like I am in a I am in a profession where that would require me giving up uh, the potential of jobs, which which would be you know my living, and so it's like. It, it's just becomes very, um, uh, the, the question marks start to multiply when you, uh, um, get in your head about things. So this, the beginning of this conversation has been so helpful for me. Uh, in fact, you have healed some wounds That's and, amazing. Um, and, uh, but, but when we get to this, like this question of, um, what is the government doing? It did feel like the government was like, Well, what are you doing to me? Mm. And uh, I guess I wanted to raise that question.
2: Yeah. And I, so uh, that is super interesting. I'm also not really surprised. Um, and the reason is that governments don't have unlimited resources, right. and especially the healthcare system. So there's this balance where, yeah, if every single person who had a sore throat self quarantined right now, the Canadian healthcare system would effectively collapse. Well, so would and the economy. It would, un- yeah. it would undermine our response to COVID nineteen. Um, so, you know, and and I think that's that's kind of what you're coming up against, right? Like, like your doctor said, yeah, we're getting a lot of people who are concerned about this, and um, um, uh, <clears throat> sorry we're getting a lot of people that are, that are concerned about this. Um, So, you know, that just demonstrates again, this, you know, how people are affected by epidemics in practical epidemiologic terms. If you had the virus, let's, let's just game this out, right? Like if you actually had COVID-19 and you didn't present at, uh, you know, as, as someone who wanted to get tested and people didn't or, you know, the healthcare system wasn't able to identify you as a case. Um, that's gonna have some real ramifications on our understanding of the virus. and 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 this is where you got to separate out kind of the epidemiologic models that people are and scientists and organizations are creating about how epidemics spread and what happens in the real world, which is always totally super complex and sometimes chaotic. Mm-hmm. So if you were infected, and you got better and you didn't present to um, the healthcare system and, and have your case sort of identified, um, that would contribute to a belief that the virus was more deadly than it actually is. Because you, having had a mild case, would not be kind of added to the ledger of the overall number of cases.
0: But it seems like that's so, what's happening, is it not?
2: Absolutely it is. Yeah, Absolutely. like, like there's, and, and again, there's that's where the the uncertainty is coming from. So, you know, we don't know how many people had this uh, had this virus and thought it was a common cold and didn't present at uh, an emergency room or self quarantined or you know were even tested. See, so I, I I only raise that because when when you're thinking again about the epidemic, like you gotta take into perspective the uncertainty and that's why the range is always more useful when you're thinking about, okay, well, how bad could it be? What's the actual case fatality rate? Look at the range. Never look at the point estimate. Like always look at the range because of people like Dan who, you know, may or like you, you, the chances are of you (laughs) actually having COVID-19 are very, very low. Yeah, But if you did, you're obviously better now. So, you know, you either didn't have it or you had it and um, you are a mild case and weren't identified. So the, our understanding of COVID-19's case fatality, uh, likely case fatality rate, is undermined because you didn't present, which is kind of neither here nor there at the moment. But um, I'm just you know, trying to game out yeah. how human decisions and human behavior and, and rational behaviors actually influence how we can understand epidemics.
0: Well, I weirdly I was, like, uh, suspicious that ITOR and I both had it a month ago. and Because
1: you had exact symptoms, you said.
0: Yeah, because we were both very, very sick. We were in Los Angeles. It was a month ago at the time. And, again, that, that thought of responsibility was there. So we were sick, but I was like, we're in L.A. on vacation. I want to see my friends. ITOR, <laughs> I mean, ITOR was sick first. We were staying in an Airbnb where there's only one bed too, so I had to sleep curled up on this tiny love seat like, like an egg. And I got sick afterwards. But you know, I was quite sick. Fevers, chills, sweating, sort of delirium, coughing certainly our lungs were messed up. But at the time, I was reading everything online and was like, it is not possible. Like, I'm being crazy. I can't have this thing. But I I looked up as much as I could to be responsible about it. And now, this stuff's coming out of Washington State where they're saying they've done DNA testing on the virus and it's been circulating in the community for a month, six weeks. So I'm like, "I, I don't know. I feel guilt, but also, I also feel like I'm a hypochondriac at the same time.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: And... I, and there's like and that's where I understand this fear as much as we rationally say we shouldn't feel it. It doesn't it. This this conversation is helping. These conversations do help, but it doesn't entirely go away. I mean, I'm scared that I would give this to my elderly family members and kill them.
2: Yeah. And that's but again, like going back to to the point earlier, if every single person who thought they were sick. Showed up at a hospital like our, our system would not be able to deal with it. Yeah.
0: So if there were a just massive pandemic with like a 60% fatality rate, we would just, we just, a bunch of people would, there'd just be chaos, right?
2: Yeah, there would be chaos.
0: That's it. We just got to end. Absolutely. And so maybe it's that as human beings, we have to accept that death and chaos is part of uncertainty, is part of what we are in and just like chill out about
1: it well it's true i mean we we do as as humanity we do understand in theory that chaos and uncertainty is a part of our lives but when you when the rubber hits the road with it you know it's like mortality it's like you know we talk about death a lot and but but like when we actually come face to face with it then things really change and so like when you're when the uncertainty sort of creeps into your day-to-day life that's i think when you see the kind of um when you, you when you when you see the reaction, the kind of reaction that you need to get used to um, comes up where you're like, OK, the, uh, this is actually how I react when I feel truly uncertain and unsafe. And it's that it's practicing almost that experience that maybe needs work.
0: I recently went to a stand up comedy show in Los Angeles and Bobcat Goldthwait performed and he talked about um he talked about um, cool name drop. <laughs> yeah, I watched him perform. I've seen many talented people perform. Um, and he he told, he relayed a story about performing at the Gathering of the Juggalos.
1: <laughs> mm, yes.
0: And um, what you're saying makes me think that, oh, it sounded terrifying. It's like they're all drinking soda pop and hitting each other in the head with the cans and they, yeah. they choose one and then beat that guy up. For it anyone sounded-
1: who doesn't know, the Gathering of the Juggalos <laughs> is a yearly gathering of the fans of the band insane clown posse it happens in the country somewhere where cops can't get to or whatever and they do all sorts of <laughs> insane things and, yeah. yeah
0: anyway but it sounded very chaotic and scary and i think maybe if we all sort of had like a weekend like that and we're like okay i i, I survived uh, or i did
1: it a catharsis <laughs> like yeah, <laughs> a purge i'm asking for the purge. you're asking for the purge
0: um dr werb yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna shift a little bit here um can so, i before you yes. shift can
2: i just say one thing absolutely so, so dan the other the, the primary Dan <laughs> um, was talking about chaos on uncertainty. Yeah. And I just want to separate those two things out because oh. to me, uncertainty is not chaos. Un- what, what's scary is when you don't know how, like what the bounds of the uncertainty are and epidemiology and epidemic control and everything, you know, responding to this virus everyone who is working on it scientifically is trying to figure out what the boundaries are. Like, again, could it be not this bad? It might be not this bad or it might be as bad as this. Um, That actually brings me great comfort. Understanding the uncertainty. Again, I don't think, I don't trust especially at this point, anyone who says it is exactly this bad. It will be exactly this bad, but understanding kind of how bad it might get and uh, or how not bad it might get, like that brings me great comfort. And you know, chaos is something entirely different. Like chaos would be suddenly we see a virus, uh, it's moving like COVID-19, and then suddenly COVID-19, there's a 60% fatality rate. Like that is that is more when I think about chaos. And that's not likely at this point. Like, yeah. sure, the virus is going to mutate. Viruses always mutate. That's why we have these viral pandemics, because we're not um, prepared for them kind of as organisms or as societies. But, but I just, you know, chaos and uncertainty are different. Like they're, they're in some ways, you know, you can un- understanding the boundaries of the uncertainty can protect against chaos.
0: Well, and I remember this, um, this sort of section from your book where you talked about defending your doctoral thesis and that the, you were criticized because it was too certain and that was a statistical problem.
2: Yes. So yeah
0: yeah certainty being less consoling because it's kind of impossible in these cases right
2: exactly yeah and to be clear like i was so certain because i had made a mistake like wow i had made a statistical mistake not at my phd defense thank god but sorry i like earlier on when i was when i, I was st- trying to quantify risk among this population of street youth in in um, Vancouver who were at risk of HIV, like I essentially, you know, did my calculations wrong and the range of uncertainty that I presented was like essentially not a range at all. Like it was so tight as to be, as to suggest I had complete and utter confidence in, in exactly what the risk was, which like Becky was saying was total garbage, right? It's like sketchy when you see science that is that certain.
0: Right. Um, okay, uh, I was gonna ask you, so you have a small child this this o- yeah. ob- this obviously changes the game when it comes to thinking about the future. Um, how do you feel in general about the future?
2: Uh, I worry I, like this this particular virus doesn't worry me when right. I think about my kid because it actually seems like at least so far the information, About pediatric cases is that they're much milder, strangely. Yeah, I hope cases. It
0: it feels very like Children of the Corn, Wrath of God. (laughs) To me, interesting. I know, as as Uh, obviously not a scientist.
2: (laughs) No, I mean, you know, fucking thank God, like we're we have just totally destroyed this planet. So at least, (laughs) like, give the kids this one (laughs) glimmer of hope, which is that this virus is not going to be as bad for them. Right. I mean, I, I worry about all kinds of shit. Like I think about climate change. I think about the fact that life expectancy is falling, um, in Canada and the United States, which is, which is nuts. Like something that hasn't happened since the 1960s. Is it? I didn't know that. Yeah. That's, they like all signs point to the opioid overdose epidemic is Mm. the main reason because so many people are dying. Um, but I you know the big thing is is climate change and and this virus is directly related to climate change because it's about again like a rising middle class with wealth in China it's about destruction of natural habitats to get uh, to feed a, a wildlife trade mm-hmm. um, where animals like beautiful adorable pangolins which are endangered are being eaten um, and their habitats destroyed so like the virus is a symptom of, of greater harm. Uh, and you know, it's basically about humanity's capacity to, um, sustain itself. Like, I don't know. i maybe, this is slightly sociopathic of me, but I worry like, I, I don't know. There, there were always going to be things that kill human humans. I, I worry more about humans capacity to just fucking destroy the planet for absolutely everyone and every other creature
0: you mean to just keep going full force and ripping it to shreds
2: yeah like that is what scares me um but you know i'm also an optimist so i don't know i i can't really explain why i'm I'm an optimist because people have too many good and rational reasons not
1: to be but (laughs) i just am
0: Yeah, I do consider you a very hopeful person. I wanted some insights into how I could steal some of it, but
1: (laughs) I Yeah. Sort of succubus style. Um, I could be your blood boy.
2: What? (laughs)
0: What did you say?
2: I I said I could be your blood boy. And it's like (laughs) rich rich people I don't know. You've heard
1: about this? I guess not. Wait, is this real? Apparently it is. <laughs> I, I thought this was just Mad Max, but no, it's it's real.
0: I'd like to hear. I mean, no, first I of all, it's... I just learned about penguins. Gotta look them up, and now you don't know what penguins? No, they're oh like of...
2: penguins are so cute. <laughs> they're like a kind <laughs> they're of. They're like the rodent family, right? They're 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 mammals. I know that they're scaly mammals. Scaly, yeah they're,
1: yeah, they're scaly. They sort of roll up into little balls, and
2: oh, like a little um... porcupine.
0: Uh, what was the other Porcupine guy? Porcupine
1: meets anteater, Armadillo, Dieter, armadillo. Yeah, 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 yeah But
2: they're But they're better than those Yo, for sure <laughs> For sure They're way fucking better Than either of those Stupid animals So Yeah 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 <laughs>
1: we'll put them Agreed man Dude high
2: five I'm gonna
0: look them up They're yep. gonna be all over This newsletter That I don't know how to make um, Okay Okay uh, this might be, we're getting close to the end here, but
2: w- wait, just to be clear, what's a blood a, boy?
0: Uh, yeah, what's a blood boy? That's exactly what I'm either, gonna ask you.
2: Either a true or um fabricated <laughs> position whereby you are a young person who is healthy <laughs> and you you provide blood uh transfusions to old wealthy billionaires.
0: I Keep love wrapping this conversation up with some <clears throat> absolute apocryphal nonsense <laughs> after urging yeah, calm totally, yeah, after urging calm and statistical like yeah. r- reasonability that we're just like and also rich people get little boys and they drink their blood
2: <laughs> mr burns <laughs> to be style. clear uh miranda my wife uh has is obviously listening because she just texted me that i'm too old to be a blood boy
0: <laughs> Sorry, she's in the next room?
1: I this, guess so, yeah. This isn't so live, so she's I, I not listening. Ret- I retract my offer. Uh-huh. Too old well, to be a blood boy. snap. <laughs> Sometimes the clouds pass over your life.
0: <laughs> is there, are, uh, Dr. Verb, do you have any closing thoughts to leave the people with?
2: I think my only thought is, again, just, you know, there are really simple ways to understand epidemics. And... They're natural phenomena. They've been around forever. They will continue past humanity uh, after humanity's demise. And the best thing, and and the the best thing to remember with epidemics and pandemics is that they always create fear. Doesn't matter what the pathogen is, fear the urge for panic and anxiety is is kind of a property. It's like a property of this natural phenomenon. So just trying to cut through that I think can be and and, and contextualize it can be really useful.
0: So wash your hands, stay calm if you're young enough and your blood's clean. You can sell it to old people, mm-hmm. Dan. Where where can people find your you your web presence? Um, your book is called City of Omens. It's really good. I recommend that. Uh,
2: what thank else you, you so much. Uh, yeah, so I'm on Twitter at dmwerb. Um, Sometimes I have public Facebook posts, uh, but Twitter is probably the best. I post the articles that are right there. Yep. If you want to dig into a bunch of research about uh, people who inject drugs and addictions and police and HIV, um, you can check me out on Google Scholar. Wow. <laughs> oh.
0: No one's plugged that yet. I don't know what it is.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's like, well i mean google has google has everything yeah the yeah. way to search for academic papers um okay. yeah and you know uh i also do music occasionally yeah i was and, gonna ask
0: uh, do you have a soundcloud band camp
2: i don't know uh i must yeah no <laughs> i do i do have a soundcloud actually i think think woodhands my uh very old band with my friend paul bamwat is gonna be playing this summer at uh a festival um <gasps> So all uh, that will be announced in the next little while, I think.
1: Amazing!
0: I love Wood Hands.
2: Me too. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, that was fantastic. Oh, and and yeah, buy they...
2: my book on Amazon.
0: Oh yeah, buy there City City of Omens on Amazon. Yeah. or at your local bookseller.
2: Actually, that would be better.
0: I got mine at Type Book, so they might still there have you them go. in Toronto.
2: There you go. Yeah. Find at your local bookseller. Yeah. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Werb. This is amazing. I hope you don't get keel hauled.
2: <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, me too.
0: Goodbye. Okay, Goodbye.
2: Bye. Okay, bye. bye. bye.
0: H-Word Podcast was recorded this week by Alex Ross. This week's artist is Leah Bukaref, and our theme music as always by Laura Barrett. For information on all of our artists and guests, please follow us everywhere at the h-word Pod. Or sign up for our newsletter at the HWordpod.com.